Marin. Greg. Do you like to win? Ooh, I mean, yes. <laughs> I do. I wouldn't consider myself a naturally competitive person, but like, who doesn't like winning? <laughs> yeah, me on the other hand, very competitive. Yeah, I do know this about yeah. you. Yeah, definitely don't always have the skill or the strength on my side, but I'm big into like the tactics or trying to work out what the best strategy would okay, be. Okay, okay, yeah, you're a strategy guy. So... Do you fancy a game of rock, paper, scissors? Oh, good Lord. Okay, all right. Okay, sure. Reminder of the rules. Well, the rules for today. We count one, two, we throw on three. Throw on three, okay. 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 And scissors beat paper. Right. Paper beats rock. Okay. Rock beats scissors. Okay. 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 Ready? Yeah. One, two, three. I played paper, you played rock. Rock always wins. I always get rock on the first try. So I win uh, over you. Okay. Best Uh, two out of three? Yep. Okay. One, two, three. Oh, you you did scissors, I did paper, you cut my paper. Okay, that's, so we're one to one. That's one apiece, okay. Tiebreaker. One, two, three. Yes! Damn I it. did paper, uh, Marin did rock, uh, that does the rock. Okay, Greg nice. wins, I'm bummed. Okay, so there's strategy here, right? Rock is seen as strong and forceful, so it's a popular first choice, uh, and indeed... That's what I went for. That's why I went paper first, because it would beat that popular first play of rock, or it would draw to paper, so only scissors would have beaten it. Novices like us, though... Are you saying I'm not a professional rock, paper, scissors player, Greg? uh, I I don't believe you are. I mean, you don't know me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Novices like us, we tend to go for the same throw twice. So as my second throw, I went for what would have beaten your first throw in case you repeated it. Got it. Uh, That didn't work, it turns out. That was too clever. (laughs) So that was us at one apiece. And then what happens is often someone subconsciously goes for what would beat their own previous throw. Oh my gosh. So a good tactic is going with what would have been beaten by your opponent's previous throw. Oh geez, there's some mental gymnastics going on here. that worked on the third one. But what I want to know is what would happen if we played more than best of three? Say we played best of 10 or we played best of 100, right? Like some serious complicated strategy and psychology for such a simple game. And I will get to the reveal later on of what one should do if playing multiple, multiple games. I would love to know. I'm on the edge of my seat. And I also want to go through a brilliant puzzle as well. It's called The Prisoner's Dilemma. Ooh which I want to get your thoughts on. Um, Today's podcast is all about winning, or more specifically, something called game theory. But which games? All games? The theory of gaming? The theory of rock, paper, scissors. What is game theory, Greg? Game theory applies to any situation in our lives where the decisions that we make have outcomes that are dependent on other people's actions and decisions as well. So anytime that our choices are impacted by the choices of other people, which it's pretty hard to find an example that doesn't fall into game theory. Wow. So you're telling me, Greg, by the end of this episode, I'm going to be able to game theory my way into (laughs) winning not only any game, but any life interaction. (laughs) (laughs) Can't promise that. Winning not guaranteed. Um, That was today's expert. I'm Matthew Jackson. I'm the Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford University. Oh, holy crap. As Matthew says, you can use game theory whenever and wherever you've got people competing for something. So, as the name suggests, it's useful for games like poker or chess, but it's also useful in other scenarios of competition, right? Maybe companies are competing for business. Maybe politicians are trying to out-strategize each other to get votes. Sure. Or traffic. You know, you're driving along every morning uh, trying to get to work and other people are driving at the same time and they're making choices of which route to use and that causes congestion and you're in a game with other people. It's everywhere in our lives all the time. So literally anything. I mean, our whole, basically our whole society is built on people competing with one another for things. So you could kind of apply game theory to like literally any social interaction. That's why this is so fascinating. Wow. Uh, game theory is incredibly powerful. And today's episode is essentially who came up with it? Have you seen the film A Beautiful Mind? That's a throwback, yes. A long time ago. This one with Russell Crowe, Yeah, so Russell Crowe plays (gasps) a mathematician called John Nash. Okay. He's often called the pioneer of game theory. Okay. In the film, he's uh, drawing all over windows and he has this big epiphany when a beautiful woman walks into a bar with her friends and John and his mates are deciding how best to approach them. And actually, I'm going to play you that clip later because I want to discuss it. Classic. And the film also shows John Nash being recruited by the Department of Defense to trawl through newspapers and magazines to spot secret Russian messages. Although it turns out 
Well, we'll get to that. And um, all this has to do with your social feeds as well. I want to get to that. What? But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Marin Hunsberger. I'm Greg Foote. And for this episode, I am the storyteller, which means Marin knows nothing about it. Literally nothing. And Greg, listen, oh, math makes me nervous. I'm nervous about this episode. Okay. I love it. <laughs> uh, I love it. But but I've, I've tried to unpack it as much as possible. So, you know, anyone listening who doesn't love math or maths, as it's correctly called, oh, um, will hopefully get something from this and you'll learn how to win. I'm excited. So as you'd expect, the first game theory was indeed used for games, right? You had a card game, uh, games like Le Heur, which was popular in the first part of the 18th century. And how do you play Le oh, Heur? goodness, don't. I mean, I did look into it. I was like, maybe we can play that, but I, I, I didn't go any further with that Sounds one. Sounds complicated. What's interesting, though, is it's not just about following the rules or just about the luck of the deal, of chance. It's also about how your opponent chooses to play. Right, so not just the statistics of how many cards there are in a deck, but what the other player is thinking. And what they're doing with it. Okay. Which means that your payoff, as we say, your payoff depends on not only your own decisions, but also those of your opponent. Wow. A guy called James Waldegrave came up with a strategy for that one. That was the first game theory solution to a two-person game. And that was the card game they were talking about? Le Her, okay. yeah. Then you've got Whist. That gets popular around then. That's over 100 years before my nan introduced me to the game. <laughs> Uh, you got poker, too. Uh, poker is its anglicised name. So the French colonists brought it over to North America. They called it poke. Oh, so poke meaning time in French. That's where poker comes from? Possibly. I had no idea. That's huh. amazing. Uh, cool story. Apparently, in 1871, Queen Victoria hears the US minister to Great Britain explaining this game to members of her court. Poker. Uh, she asks him for the rules, and that brings poker to the UK. Queen Victoria bringing, bringing the gambling over. <laughs> well done her. <laughs> so great minds ponder these games. Uh, they come up with strategies and that's where game theory is used for games until a French mathematician called Emile Borel enters the story in 1921 to suggest that game theory could be used for economic and military situations too. Whoa. So he takes it out of the realm of just entertainment, whiling away the hours by the fireside playing whist and is says, you know what, we could do this with ships or his, something. Here's Matthew on Emil Burrell. He's an amazing mathematician that did all sorts of things, but he was interested in poker. He was the first person to really carefully define what eventually became known as the Colonel Blotto game, which is a very fundamental game that studies war. So the Colonel Blotto game is, let's imagine there's two colonels. They're out in the battlefield. And imagine that you've got several different fields that you can be putting your armies on. So let's, let's take three fields. So we've got three fields in front of us. You can put your armies on the fields and I can put my armies on the fields. And imagine that the game is such that whoever puts the most troops on a given field wins that field. And whoever wins the most fields wins the war. Jeez, this is like a an antique battleship game. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I have 100 troops, I have three fields. So if I want to win the most fields, I'm going to equally divide my 100 troops over the three fields. Mm -hmm. Quest. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. I'm going to go All with right. that. Yeah. All right, so I may predict that's what you're going to do. So instead, I may choose to put, say, 50 on one, 50 on another. Now, I'm going to lose the field with zero on it, right, of course. Sure, you of, take that L. Right, yeah. fine. Because if you've split roughly equally, that would be 33 people on each one with one spare. 33.3. <laughs> <right? laughs> then I'm yeah. going to win those two fields that I've put 50 on right, over course. your 33. Of and course. if I win two fields and you win one field, I win the battle overall. Because you've anticipated that I'm going to do that tackle the three fields strategy. Yeah, the equal, okay. the equal spread kind of strategy. So on that occasion, I'd win. But if you had not gone for equal, I wouldn't necessarily have won. So what is the general solution? Like, what's the best strategy? I asked Matthew what Burrell's solution was. So Burrell was conceptualizing games, but he didn't have a way to solve those games. It wasn't until the 1950s that that game was eventually understood. So Burrell first poses this problem in the 20s, and then it's not till the 50s that we yeah. have a 30 years solution? it took for the solution. <laughs> Wait, what's the solution? Well, I pressed Matthew on exactly that. Oh, so the Colonel Blotto game is an intricate one. I have to randomize how many troops I'm going to put on the different fields. 
I should be mixing. So there's certain combinations that I could put of like, you know, 60 here, 30 here, zero here, and then move them around and so forth. But it's a very specific combination. It actually has a beautiful geometric proof that was discovered uh, by Gross and Wagner in the 1950s. And then a, a new solution just came up about 10 years ago. When you were first explaining that game, that was so simple. I had no idea that it would be so complicated that we would only come up with proofs to be solving it like 10, 10 years, years ago. ago. Are you kidding yeah. me? That's crazy. The, the key here, really, the, the reason I wanted to introduce this Colonel Blotto game is because Burrell has seen the potential of using game theory beyond the right. classic parlor games, right, in the real world world. And that brings me on to John, not John Nash. A different John. A Beautiful Mind. I'll get to him and his ideas. Yeah, another John. Um, History is littered with John. John von Neumann. Von Neumann? Yes, yes. I know him. We talked about him last season. Computer guy, mathematician guy, brilliant guy, responsible for computer architecture. And it turns out... He was actually a polymath. He's known for many contributions in mathematics and is considered one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century, but he was also involved in quantum mechanics and the Manhattan Project and physics. So just like a really casual guy then. Didn't contribute much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He was actually born Jansky von Neumann at the tail end of 1903 in Hungary. Child prodigy. Of course. Try this out, Marin. Divide 4,125 by 1,375. Yeah. No, no, that's that's a no from me. Jansky could do that at the age six. You're kidding. Uh, he could also chat in ancient Greek. Uh-huh. When he's six, actually, um, there's a story that he catches his mother staring aimlessly into the distance. And he says, uh, Mum, what are you calculating? Because <laughs> everyone who must be staring off into the distance is, of course, calculating something. By the age of eight, he knows calculus, uh, both differential and integral. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, he loves history. By the age of 15, he starts studying advanced calculus, uh, and the guy that teaches him is so impressed on their first meeting that he starts crying. Wow, that is an anecdote. With Can you joy, imagine? I Can you imagine reducing someone to tears with your mathematical ability? And that guy ability? was like an expert. As well. Wow. Uh, by the age of 19, John von Neumann has published two major mathematical papers. <laughs> A classic underachiever. So his father um, didn't actually want him to go and study maths. So he got a degree in chemical engineering, right, something more practical. But he does then end up at the University of Göttingen in Germany, focusing on mathematics. And it's there that he starts making waves in the game theory pond. The game theory pond. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) Von Neumann started with a mathematically beautiful set of games, really just, you know, most elegant, really beautiful set of games, which are known as zero-sum games. And these games are the kinds of games where there's a winner and loser. So sports are zero-sum games. If you win, I lose. Right. So a zero-sum game is there can only be one winner, there's one loser, there's no winning by halves. There's no, oh, I've gotten a certain percentage of something, so therefore I've won in some way. It's like, no, you either win or you lose. A binary. So technically it's binary in terms of, yeah, one of us wins, one of us loses, but there's a level to how much you can win. So in poker, you know, the more money I win, the less money you win. Okay, okay, sure. So me winning something takes away you winning something, but there is still one winner and one loser. Yeah. And so you can think about my strategies not as trying to win, but trying to minimize what you do, right? So von Neumann analyzed that game and figured out that the best I can do is actually try to minimize what you can do, right? So if I minimize what you can do, that maximizes what I can do. And he developed this theorem called the min-max theorem. It proved that there was a solution to these games so you could make predictions about what's the best strategy for each person. That's so funny. When he said mini-max, I was like, oh, that sounds so cute. And then I realized it's because mini is short for minimum. <laughs> and then max is short for maximum. That makes sense. So, so von Neumann is the one who comes up with the solution that we've been looking for. Well, he proved that there was a solution to these types that of it even zero exists. sum games. Yes, 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 yes. So he publishes this Minimax theorem uh, in 1928, and it has the uh, rather understated title of Fundamental Theorem of Game Theory. <laughs> not, uh, not pulling any punches on that one. <laughs> so in it, he says that for any of these types of zero sum games, if both players know everything that's going on, you can find something called equilibrium. Okay. Equilibrium in that setting is when we get to a situation where we're both following the optimal strategy that makes our payoff as high as possible and the other person's payoff as low as possible in a zero-sum game. Okay, let's recap. Okay. So a zero-sum game, one person wins, one person loses. Uh, One person can win more than the other person. So he came up with this mini-max theorem that says that basically 
I'm not trying to like, of course, I'm trying to win, but I'm trying to maximize my winnings, minimize your winnings mm. in order for me to win. And he proved that there was a solution to these bunch of zero sum games. Right. So he's okay. like these games like chess and poker and stuff. There will be a solution, an optimal way to play these games to win the most you possibly can. And if you play that solution, that strategy, that's called equilibrium. Right. We're both following this kind of optimal strategy to give us the biggest pay off you possibly can. So it's like the game theory equivalent of in an ideal world. For physics, that's if you have a spherical cow. <laughs> For game theory, it's <laughs> equilibrium. <laughs> okay, okay. So okay. we're going to come back to equilibrium in a bit, actually. The thing is that this fundamental paper, right, as he calls it, didn't really do much. Hmm. Like, yeah, fellow mathematicians are interested in it, sure. But it's his next publication that really causes much bigger waves in this game theory pond, right? In fact, it gets him on the front page of the New York Times. News was quite different in that day, I'm assuming. <laughs> That's fascinating. Also gets him into uh, the world of nuclear war. Oh, jeez. It will also take us to John Nash and a beautiful mind. Oh, exciting. But first, it's time for a break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. I'm going to jump from 1928, which was when John von Neumann published his first paper, uh, to 1944, which is when he publishes the one that has quite the impact. Mm. So in those intermediate 16 years, John marries a brilliant economics student, Marietta Cavessi. She's a big presence in the social nightlife of Budapest. They have a daughter, Marina, but eventually they break up. I read that that was because John is focused on his maths more than the home life. Mm. He gets really interested in poker, just as Emile Burrell had done 20 years ago. And also, just like Emile, John realises that poker is not just about probability. He starts thinking about the idea of bluffing, right, which is obviously a big thing in poker. And that's what we call imperfect knowledge, right? You don't know everything. You might be bluffing at me and I've got no idea, therefore, what cards you're holding. Got a great poker face. Right, and this brings in all kinds of human psychology, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I don't know this about von Neumann, but if he's a real mathematics whiz, does he consult with psychologists or does he have his own great knowledge of, like, how minds work? One person he does consult with is a guy called Oscar Morgenstern. And it's his work with him that I want to move on to. So Oscar didn't study maths. Oscar studied political science. Oh, okay. And together they collaborate on a paper which then gets extended into a 625-page book oh, called Theory of Games and Economic Behaviour. Oh, key add-on there. This is what brings game theory out of the world of mathematicians and into the wider world. John and Oscar's book makes the front page of the New York Times. Incredible. Arguably, it did take them a year and a half. <laughs> so so it came out, nothing really happened for a year and a half. Yeah, it's because that's how long it takes to read a 600-page book. That <laughs> <laughs> The author of the New York Times article actually says it was, quote, formidable intellectually. I mean, yes, I quote, would also. <laughs> ma mathematical deductions that were, quote, frequently intricate. Oh, good Lord. I mean, he's not wrong. Fre frequently intricate. What a glowing review. <laughs> okay, here you go. I want you to read some of this 1946 New York Times front page article. A new approach to economic analysis that seeks to solve hitherto insoluble problems of business strategy by developing and applying to them a new mathematical theory of games, of strategy like poker, chess, and solitaire, has caused a sensation amongst professional economists. The techniques applied by the authors in tackling economic problems are of sufficient generality to be valid in political science, sociology, or even military strategy. So this review is the front page of the New York Times. Yeah. Somebody has read this book and inferred how incredibly important it will be to such a wide array of fields. And you mentioned military strategy there yeah. at the end. So John had actually, for the past year or so, been part of the Manhattan Project, the American-led effort during World War II to develop an atomic weapon. Yeah. And that was actually thanks to his early work on the mathematics of explosions. Oh my gosh. Particularly shaped charges. He's everywhere. Um, He's all over the map. But he had also got interested through that, I guess, of applying game theory principles to war. Which is huge with like nuclear posturing. I mean, 
mean, we still yes. talk about that today, right, with deterrence and making sure that nobody actually drops another nuclear bomb. And how do we do that? So his thoughts go like this. He says, if the most powerful countries around the world had the same kind of weapons so that they knew they could mutually destroy each other, that could become a deterrent and neither of them would decide to employ the weapons first. Which is the stalemate that we're at right now in the world nuclear weapons sphere. John's work with the Manhattan Project um, actually involved developing the mathematical models behind the explosive lenses used in the nuclear bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Wow. And in fact, it was John, four other scientists and various military folk who selected those targets. Jeez. Does he ever say anything about how he feels about that? Um, it's kind of that notion of, and we've talked about this before in season one, you know, of the expertise of scientists and mathematicians and engineers being used for this project. It, yes, ultimately led to the death of lots of people, but it was their strategic knowledge, their mathematical knowledge, their engineering knowledge that allowed the advancement. You know, it's a really tricky ethical debate. It's a really tough one, especially when you have such a genius mind and minds like of all kinds that were working on the Manhattan Project. Like, what are they going to do if not advance science to the very furthest points? And then like what happens to that science is not necessarily under their control. This, however, felt like he was actually choosing, he was working on those explosive lenses to create the biggest explosion possible mm. and deciding where they'd have the biggest effect geographically. Ooh. So... Right, let's bring in the other John, John Nash. John Nash. Right, who, when the New York Times article is published, uh, John Nash is finishing off his mathematics degree at the Carnegie Institute of Technology. He graduates in 1948, is accepted onto a scholarship to Princeton to continue his adventures in mathematics. I remember this from the movie. And yeah, this is where the movie, A Beautiful Mind, starts telling his story. Well, so Nash is an amazing character. Von Neumann had been looking at zero-sum games. I win, you lose, and so forth. But many games in life are not like that. So there are games where there's mutual possibilities for improvement. And then Minimax Theorem doesn't apply. You can't really use the techniques that von Neumann was using. And Nash managed to formulate this in a different way that was quite powerful. In the film, John Nash, he's really desperate to find his original idea. He's like, what is my original idea? And you see him drawing all over the dorm room windows and he's mapping the movements of pigeons that are pecking for food. <laughs> and he's, he's like drawing little sketches of rugby players passing a ball around. Uh, but it's in the bar when four ladies walk in that he has his epiphany. I want to play the clip. If we all go for the blonde. We block each other. Not a single one of us is going to get her. So then we go for her friends. But they will all give us the cold shoulder because nobody likes to be second choice. But what if no one goes for the blonde? We don't get in each other's way. And we don't insult the other girls. That's the only way we win. That's the only way we all get laid. <laughs> yeah, okay, putting aside the blatant objectification of women in this scene. Fair. <laughs> very interesting concept. And then it leads him to say that the best result comes from everyone in the group going for what's best for himself and the group. Amazing. So transitioning from this every man for himself mentality, it's win or lose, zero sum, into... I can win, but also we can all win. And we have a better chance of each of us winning if we all win, in a sense. Uh, he calls it governing dynamics. And then he runs out and he's like, he thanks the blonde lady as, as he exits. It's a big eureka. <laughs> a big light bulb moment. So that governing dynamics that he's, he's yelling, <laughs> governing dynamics, gentlemen, <laughs> um, that's what he writes up as his doctoral thesis. Um, but what is fact? What is fiction? Well, he did indeed publish his thesis in 1950. It actually had the title The Bargaining Problem. But did the scene show that? It's wonderful that they made a movie. And I'm sure that it would be great to be played by Russell Crowe. That scene was sort of a mishmash of a bunch of different ideas. You know, it's like, oh my God, you've got one scene where you can really explain game theory to people. And you get a sort of, I won't say wrong, but it was, it got the idea that there were strategies and different people were interacting and so forth. But the actual prediction and solution made no sense at all. So 
we've got ye old classic Hollywood problem of dramatization, just taking a little bit of the accuracy out of the story here. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got some YouTube comments that were below that clip. Oh, amazing. I mean, YouTube comments always come in clutch, yeah. either with like something really horrible or also something really great. These are my favorite type of YouTube comments. They're like nerds. <laughs> Uh, so I'm like, going to give well, you them actually. to read. Yeah, I'm going to give you them to read in a bit. Um, but let's first get our heads around what the bargaining problem is all about. Okay. There's two main veins of game theory. One's called non-cooperative. And that's the kind of game theory that was set in motion by the first work of von Neumann and Minimax and so forth. And then there's what's known as cooperative game theory. And the bargaining problem is, is part of that. So just as an example, we have a group and we're trying to divide up some resources. How do we divide that up among the team members? There might be some stars on our team that are vital and, and really important. And then there's other players who are more replaceable and, and less vital to the team who should get what amount of the prize money. That's sort of the bargaining problem. Okay, so does what it says on the tin, got it. And that's in opposition to the competitive model, which is where von Neumann comes in, mini max, we've got this winning and losing. Yeah, so John Nash's thesis tackles this cooperative type, right? Essentially finding fair ways to share resources like prize money or a restaurant bill. Uh, Not a group of ladies in a bar. That same year, which is 1950, uh, John publishes another paper, another big idea in the other world of game theory, uh, non-cooperative, that world, you know, a.k.a competitive. Got it. It's revolutionized the application of game theory in economics and in social sciences generally. Wow, quite a statement. It's known as Nash's Equilibrium. Wow, love to have something named after you. It's great. And here it is. The Nash equilibrium, that's, you know, this basic idea that you've got a bunch of things you can be doing. Those choices interact with each other. We want to look for stable points where what I'm doing is taking into account what you're doing and I'm doing the best I can given what you're doing. When we're both optimizing at the same time, then that's considered an equilibrium. We couldn't change what we're doing and do better. Man, this is crazy because as a scientist, I'm thinking in terms of like variables, kind of like Mm. all of these input variables, how they're changing the outcome. And of course, in a social situation, you can never quantify or enumerate all of the different variables at play. So game theory to me feel from like a biological perspective feels to me like this way to optimize these really nuanced and non-quantifiable situations where there's so much at play. I remember doing uh, decision maths Mm. uh, at A-level, so just before uni, and then um, a bit of that was game theory. You know, optimizing paths and, and, you know, if you've got to visit these many houses on these many islands, how should you go about doing so? And and a bit of this game theory stuff about strategy. And it's just, I think it's it's awesome. It's totally fascinating. super interesting. And the fact that there is an answer. There is a solution to some of these. Just kind of blows my mind. I'm going to show you what a Nash equilibrium is using a brilliant brain bender uh, that is the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, first, though, those YouTube comments on that beautiful mind. I'm so ready. <laughs> okay, here you go. <laughs> okay. So Jerry Liu has a very valid criticism where he says, in this clip, John Nash is using backwards induction. It's not the Nash equilibrium. The Nash equilibrium occurs in a simultaneous game in which this scenario isn't. There's steps to this courtship, whereas a real Nash equilibrium would take place if all of them decided to approach at once. Great criticism, Jerry. And then we've got Tony G replying to Jerry <laughs> saying, I don't see backwards induction. Neither can I see an equilibrium. If they would agree on going for the brunettes, everyone would have an incentive to deviate and go for the blonde. It's a prisoner's dilemma, actually. (laughs) Okay. And then we have user, best name of all time, Soup of Possibilities, who says, it does, however, beautifully illustrate the concept that collaboration will produce better results than competition. Thank you, Soup of Possibilities. So all all three of them together have sort of cohesively come <laughs> to the conclusion that like, yeah, this isn't perfect, but it does this, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do this. And, and they're see- dropping these knowledge bombs, <laughs> right? Classic. With Nash's equilibrium, the prisoner's dilemma. Amazing. I love you too. Have you ever heard of the prisoner's dilemma? I feel like I have. Mm. It's like, it's often presented as a, like a riddle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I had also heard of it but I didn't know the solution so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the puzzle okay right the riddle then we'll take a break for us all to ponder the solution yeah, thank god okay okay all right so I've taken this version from William Poundstone's book Prisoner's Dilemma uh, with a few Greg tweaks oh I love it 
QFunkyRiddle underscore. <laughs> Two members of a criminal gang are arrested and imprisoned. Let's call them Alan and Bethany. I was going to ask if they had names. <laughs> a and B. There you go. Uh, perfect. Each prisoner is put into solitary confinement with no means of communicating with the other. The prosecutors lack sufficient evidence to convict the pair on the main charge, but they have enough to convict them both on a lesser charge. The prosecutors decide to offer each prisoner a bargain. And they do this uh, simultaneously, so without the other one knowing as well. Each prisoner is given the opportunity to either betray their fellow gang member, which means that they testify that it was the other person who committed the crime, it was them, not me, or, second option, say nothing. And then they still both run the risk of being convicted of the lesser crime. Well, let's work through the possible outcomes. Okay. Uh, and the prison sentences for each. So there are three possible outcomes, okay? First outcome, they could both betray each other. Now, if Alan and Bethany each testify that it was the other person who committed the crime, they're going to each serve five years in prison. Okay. Second outcome, one person betrays and the other person stays silent. Ouch. So if Alan betrays Bethany and says that she did it, but Bethany remains silent, then Alan is going to be set free and Bethany will serve 10 years in prison. What a snitch, Alan. Likewise, if Alan remains silent, but Bethany betrays him, Alan will serve 10 years in prison and Bethany will be set free. Got it. Which leaves the third and final outcome is that they both remain silent. Now, if neither Alan nor Bethany say anything, essentially if they cooperate, although they wouldn't know that they were doing so, if they both remain silent, they will each serve a lesser sentence of two years. Oh, wow. Okay. What should they do? I'm going to leave you to ponder that during the break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. So, Alan and Bethany are both in prison and they are facing a dilemma. Do they betray the other and say it was their fellow gang member who committed the crime, not them? Or do they stay silent? If I am, say I'm Alan, just for the sake of hypotheticals, I want to minimize my possible prison sentence. So ideally, you know, in the best possible of worlds, I would have no prison time. Zero. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I would consider snitching on Bethany. Yep. Obviously. But is the risk that she also snitches on me high enough that I'm willing to stay silent for the least, like the, the second best option, which is the two years, right? So I have to like maybe assess how risky that is. And you can't communicate. Right. So how do I know? I feel, I feel like both people banking on not snitching is the way to go. But you also have to know, like, is Bethany the kind of gal who's, like, not going to break under prison? <laughs> I love this. I love this. <laughs> right? Okay. All right. So what would you do? Okay. I mean, it totally depends on the other person. I mean, that's also a different question to what should what should somebody right. do. Like, was it? Okay. If it were me and you, Greg, and we were doing this, well, it depends on what we've done. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like to think you wouldn't rat me out. So... I would probably stay silent in the hopes, in banking on the fact that you would also stay silent and then we would both only get two years. Okay. I, I, oh, I don't, yeah, okay, I'm going to stay with that. Right. The best option for you, of course, is if the other person stays silent and you betray them, right? Then you walk free. Uh, but if they realise that too and they opt to betray you, then you've each betrayed each other five years each. So perhaps you better stay silent because if they also stay silent, you only get two years each. Exactly. Right? That cooperation would lead to the least total for the two of you. Right. Kind of collectively. But the dilemma is that if you stay silent, hoping they decide to do the same, and instead they betray you, you serve 10 years, they walk. <sighs> Awful. What is the Nash equilibrium for this? Right? What is the choice that leaves you better off no matter what your opponent decides to do? I would love to know. I have a best strategy, which is to confess no matter what. By confess here, Matthew means betray, right? So the best strategy, he says, is to confess that it the other person not you oh no be a snitch no matter what oh and so the equilibrium is we both end up confessing we'd like to before we go into our separate room say look you know whatever you do don't confess i won't confess either right
right? But that's not an equilibrium. Once you get in that room, you know, you're facing long-term in prison. If I happen to confess, it's, it's in your interest to confess. And that's the, the unique equilibrium point. And that's sort of a very strong, stable point in that game. Okay, so instead of my idea of like just banking on the fact that the other person isn't going to snitch, you actually have to bank that they are going to snitch. <laughs> Yes, dear listener, if you're ever in this scenario, your best bet is to betray the other person. That is the stable Nash equilibrium. Oh my god. Okay, wait, does anywhere in this come in, like, human psychology just because we're bad at having each other's backs? I think it's purely mathematical, uh, strategic, deciding that choice that leaves you better off no matter what your opponent does. Mm, so you're not reliant on the other person in that, in that equation. This scenario, The Prisoner's Dilemma, uh, is often credited to an Albert Tucker in 1950. Mm. It's said to be his way of making the work of two Stanford psychologists, uh, Merrill Flood and Melvin Drescher, uh, a bit more accessible. But there are some people who suggest that actually it was made up by John Nash, who was Albert Tucker's grad student. Ooh, a little bit of intrigue there. That wouldn't be the first time that somebody's PI has taken a grad student's work and put their name on it. (laughs) Back to John Nash then, uh, because we need to figure out if he was indeed the pioneer of game theory, as he's often called. I also want to have a look at the role that game theory is playing in our modern lives as well. We'll get to that at the end of the pod. Um, John Nash published those two big ideas, one in cooperative game theory and the other, the Nash equilibrium in non-cooperative game theory. That was 1950. After Princeton in 1951, John moves to uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where he's hired as the Moore instructor in the mathematics faculty. Yeah, he gets to teach this maths knowledge to students. Um, about a year later, and this isn't in the film, John begins a relationship with a nurse called Eleanor Steer. Eleanor gets pregnant, but John leaves her when she tells him about the pregnancy. Oh, bummer. Yeah, I can see why that's not in the movie. What is in the movie, though, is that alongside his teaching at MIT, John becomes a consultant for the RAND Corporation. It's a company that provides research and analysis to the United States Armed Forces. Oh, yeah, I do. I remember that part, like guys in government suits coming into the picture and... Deciphering (laughs) codes on the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) So the hope is that game theory can be applied to global nuclear strategy in the face of nuclear war, which, as, as Matthew says, makes sense. It'd be better off if none of us had to arm ourselves, right? But if you don't arm yourself and I do arm myself, then you're going to be in trouble if we're in a Cold War. And so, you know, the the arms race that was going on in terms of nuclear weapons had some elements of of a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, man, I think nuclear deterrence is so fascinating because I'm like a staunch pacifist, right? And I don't think anybody should ever, you know, use nuclear weapons on anybody, obviously. However, the problem remains, people have them. And so how do you then keep everyone from using them and it becomes this incredible standoff. It kind of throws back to what von Neumann was saying, you know, about that notion that if we know everyone does have them, then no one's going to want to use them because they're going to come back at them. Um, Another part of John's personal story that isn't in the film happens in Santa Monica in California in 1954. John is in his 20s and he's arrested. It's part of a sting operation targeting homosexual men, and John is arrested for indecent exposure. Jeez, yeah, Hollywood definitely didn't include that in the movie. And, you know, no matter what actually happened, it stands as such a good reminder that being gay, or at least not straight, was criminal up until not too long ago. Like, it was legalized in the UK in, like, 1967, I think. I should say, the charges are dropped. But it does lead to him being stripped of his top secret security clearance. Oh, jeez. And being therefore fired from the Rand Corporation. Man, what I wouldn't give to know what actually happened. Like, was did somebody set him up in Santa Monica to get arrested? Maybe because of his work with the government? Or, you know, was there something else going on in his personal life that we just have we know nothing about i mean like the fact that they don't even touch on this in the movie is crazy they just really focus on what happens to his his mental health later in his life right yeah so those men he calls them mental disturbances sure and they start in 1959 so he's a couple of years into a into his marriage actually to physics graduate alicia lade lopez harrison she's pregnant by this time and he changes from again his words he says he changes from scientific rationality to delusional thinking. 
Hmm. And we do see this in the film. Spoiler alert. We do see this in the film. Um, he thinks that all men who wear red ties are part of a communist conspiracy theory against him. Uh, and he mails letters to embassies in Washington, D.C. about it. That's hmm. the reality of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. I think the film is more about that experience right, what's going on in his beautiful mind, uh, rather than his game theory. And he is indeed soon diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia. The film shows John going to the Pentagon in 1953 to analyse radio transmissions from Moscow. And it shows that when he's there, he's approached by a Department of Defence agent who instructs him to look at newspapers and magazines and to try to spot and decode secret messages and then pass them on via drop spots. And Spoiler alert about this whole bit of the film. What you realise when you watch the film is you start to realise that the people John sees, so this agent from the DOD and his roommate and that roommate's niece, they don't exist. They're all in his head, which is actually a bit of artistic licence from the film director because John didn't ever see anybody. He only ever heard voices. Mm, okay, so yeah, definitely a dramatization. And you know, it makes me think all the time, and I've thought this since reflecting on this movie, is do you think a movie would have been made about John Nash and game theory and equilibrium if they hadn't had this element of suffering or this dramatic mental illness that people like to really either vilify or romanticize? You know, the fact that this story was even made into a movie shows this bias that we have in society and what we want to remember and stories we want to tell. A little bit of exploitation, you know, it makes me feel uncomfy. I think that's a super astute point. I think that, no, I don't think they, they would have told this story, converted it into a film. It's true that he had paranoid schizophrenia and he was indeed admitted to hospital in April 1959. Um, Here, have a read of this. This is what he later writes about that period of his life. I spent times of the order of five to eight months in hospitals, always on an involuntary basis. When I had been long enough hospitalized, I would finally renounce my delusional hypotheses and revert to thinking of myself as a human of more conventional circumstances and return to mathematical research. In these interludes of, as it were, enforced rationality, I did succeed in doing some respectable mathematical research. After my return to the dreamlike delusional hypotheses in the later 60s, I became a person of delusionally influenced thinking, but of relatively moderate behavior and thus tended to avoid hospitalization and the direct attention of psychiatrists. Indeed, after 1970, he is never committed to a hospital again. Wow, that makes me so sad that he has to police himself in in such a way that because hospitalization was so traumatic and he didn't want to be readmitted and just the the lack of adequate help that we could offer people suffering with this at that time yeah he does um i did read that you know and lots of people have talked about this that he doesn't think he would have had those ideas had mm. he not had a brain like that that's so interesting to me because i feel like there's always this debate around does one need to be mad to be a genius and something that stuck with me for a long time is somebody talking about van gogh Mm. now van gogh was obviously like a very disturbed person and you know his life ended prematurely and he went through a lot of suffering and cut off his own ear but he was Mm. obviously also this incredible artistic genius and somebody responded with like oh well if we had ever treated van gogh with antidepressants we wouldn't have the starry night and somebody can't make up those narratives though can you and they loved the response somebody else said no, he would have had 10 more starry nights. Oh, yeah. Do you well, know what I mean? Like, I think you can't, one can never equate, you have to be mad to be genius. There are so many different confounding factors. Totally. Uh, I've got three last things to round out John's story. Before we look at game theory now and reflect on how it got here and who indeed was its pioneer, um, two of these things are wonderful. One is not. So in 1978, John is awarded the John von Neumann Theory Prize for his discovery of the non-cooperative equilibrium, the Nash equilibrium. The two stories intersect. It's so great, isn't it? So this is John Nash meeting John von Neumann, but sadly not meeting physically. John von Neumann has died by this point. He died in 1957, uh, likely of bone cancer that some suggest he got from the radiation he was blasted with whilst watching the atomic test on Bikini Atoll while he was with uh, the Atomic Energy Commission. Lots of people did during those tests. We just had no idea. Yeah. Here's the big one for John Nash, though. 1994, he receives the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his work on game theory. No way. Oh, my gosh. That's so great. I'm so glad he gets gets recognized. And he shares it with two other 
game theory mathematicians who extended his work. We should give a nod to John Harsney and Reinhard Selton. Okay, nod, yes. John gets to pull on his tux and he receives the award at the Nobel Prize Ceremony, which is held every year at the Stockholm Concert Hall on the anniversary of Alfred Nobel's death. Uh, And that is the final scene of A Beautiful Mind. Yep. However, the final scene of John's story occurs 14 years after the film comes out. On May the 23rd, 2015, John and Alicia are in a taxi in New Jersey and the driver loses control of the vehicle, strikes a guardrail, and John and Alicia are sadly killed. Oh my gosh, that is, that's tragic. What a legacy he left behind though. And in fact, that legacy was way beyond what he imagined, um, as Matthew Jackson told me. I remember an interview with him, one of the first interviews after he won the Nobel Prize, asked him, you know, did he, he envision how important his work was going to become in analyzing auctions and traffic and war and all, you know, all kinds of things. But he didn't, he didn't even understand how important it had become. It, it had an impact way beyond what he had anticipated or anybody at the time. You know, they were thinking more in, in sort of narrow settings and, and games. And, you know, now it's been applied to almost every aspect of our lives. Okay, yeah. So right now, with my limited knowledge of game theory, I can kind of only picture a couple of limited examples where I feel like, okay, yeah, I could put that into practice here, here, and here, but like, what are we talking about? I had such a fascinating conversation with Matthew uh, about his interest in social networks. So he talked about how our decisions are influenced by our friends and them by their friends, right? And it's not just face-to-face, it's also through seeing their social media feeds and those of celebrities and other people as well. And that when we interact with Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, etc., we're not just interacting with those human creations, right? We're also being guided by and interacting with the platform and the software too. The algorithm, the bots. This is so obvious, but I didn't even think to extrapolate this out to our digital lives and the way that we live on line. I mean, it doesn't it just get like exponentially more complicated when we introduce these digital networks? Heck yeah. Right. Here's more from Matthew. That's really the frontier now of game theory, because now we're thinking about interacting human systems and algorithms and the algorithms affect how the humans behave. The humans affect how the algorithms behave. And that's important, not just in looking at, at things like social media and information spread, but also you know, how do we get self-autonomous cars on the road when they're still people driving and people crossing streets. And that's a giant interacting system. And if you don't know some game theory, you're going to make some mistakes in designing those systems, right? So these are kinds of things where, you know, you really have to understand the system as a whole and understand those interacting parts to really do well. And so I think game theory is a very important tool in our lives in these kinds of levels. Amazing. Incredible. I mean, it's so right. Anywhere where you've got interactions, especially now human actors and interactions and non-humans like the self-autonomous cars and, ah, brilliant. So many. And do we now have like the more complicated version of the general Blotto. Oh, the Colonel Blotto game? Yeah, yeah, the Colonel Blotto problem. Like, have have we now returned to a place where we're like, okay, well, we need new theories to think about these issues. Or can we still apply those, you know, Nash's equilibrium and the prisoner's dilemma to these kinds of issues. I think you can still apply a notion like Nash's equilibrium, but to calculate it when there are so many different things involved is bonkers. Like think how long it took for the Colonel Blotto game, 1920s through to 10 years ago. It's going to be... We're going to need a quantum computer (laughs) to get there. (laughs) Matthew has a book actually, it's called The Human Network uh, by Professor Matthew O. Jackson. I'm going to get a hold of that and read it because I... That sounds amazing. Me too. Writing that one down. So there we have it, the birth of game theory and where it's being applied right now. Uh, One final question then. I'm ready. Who do we credit with the birth of game theory? Mm. Who was its pioneer? Was it John Nash? Was it John von Neumann? Was it Emile Burrell? I feel like everything in science, you can never point to one person and be like, you, you're the winner. You get the medal. It's like it takes years, decades, generations of improvements and building on each other's work to get to what we have today in anything. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) One of those YouTube comments actually said, with due respect to Nash, his paper is just an extension of von Neumann's Minimax theorem to probabilistic strategies. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. (laughs) It's just an extension. Um, I want to know what Matthew thought about this. Without von Neumann, 
Nash wouldn't have done what he did. But if Nash didn't come along, von Neumann's work wouldn't have had anywhere near the same impact. But I think you know von Neumann together with Nash and then together with a whole series of people that come along afterwards that give us a lot of tools for dynamic games and games of incomplete information. It's incremental. And each one of these things is more powerful because of all the tools that have come before them. Science as a team sport, it's something where, you know, it really takes whole groups to build on each other. Science is a team sport. I love that. And, you know, it's so funny that we've been talking about competition this whole time, that <laughs> coming back to the rock, paper, scissors analogy, you know, science and publishing first or winning stuff is not a rock, paper, scissors game. Like, I think this story shows that you have to be collaborative to make strides that get us to places of new, get us to new heights and new understandings. Talking of rock, paper, scissors, do you want to know what actually is the best strategy? Yes, if of we course I do, Greg. Multiple, multiple games. I want to win. It has a Nash equilibrium, <gasps> right? It has a best strategy you can reasonably hope to follow. Uh, and that is, drum roll please, <laughs> to play randomly. Oh my God, you've got to be kidding me, Greg. <laughs> Otherwise, right, in the long run, if you weren't playing randomly, if there was a strategy, a pattern that you were following, the other player could work out what that is and then they could beat it. That is so funny. So just like kid on the playground, actually best strategy according to Nash's Equilibria. <laughs> uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to a Quanta magazine article that goes through the whole derivation of that Nash Equilibria. Right? It goes through the whole thing, pops out basically saying, play randomly. That is so funny. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, did you enjoy that? Uh, yeah, hugely. All of my nerves about math gone. I feel like an absolute champion. And it was so cool to feel like I actually finally understand that and how it plays into every single thing you could possibly think of. I really enjoyed the film, A Beautiful Mind, when it came out. I like really enjoyed finding out what was fact, what was fiction. And just, yeah, this area of mathematics is wicked. I mean, it goes all the way from this vintage card game that I've never heard of. Leher. To the atomic bomb. Yeah, and then to autonomous cars and social networks. Amazing. Time to say our thank yous and our goodbyes. Big, big thanks to Professor Matthew O. Jackson at Stanford University for your time and knowledge. I really enjoyed our call dusting off my maths uh, and just getting really nerdy on that. Loved it. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast episode as much as I did, then please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone you think may enjoy this episode or any of the others. Tell your friends. More episodes are also on their way, so make sure you subscribe to catch them. And if you have a story from science history that you'd like us to tell, or an invention that you'd like to know the story behind, then you can email us at brilliant at seeger.com. And if you'd like to get in touch on this big web of game theory complexity that is social networks, opposite me is Marin Hunsberger. She goes by at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, but not that on Instagram, at Marin B, B-E-A. It's not available on Instagram, Greg. <laughs> Across the table from me is Greg Foote, who helpfully is at Greg Foote on both Twitter and Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Greg Foote. My co-host is Marin Hunsberger, and our producer was Sylvia Lazarus. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger, and we had support from the team at Seeker, including Carolyn Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Marin, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatgadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at seeker.com. We'll chat to you next time. See ya.